Amanda and his wonderful family. Um, they have they have reintroduced me to really good food, um, and I appreciate it. Uh, I live in Jacksonville, Florida, where they have yet to discover what really good food is. Um, so it was it was uh, quite a treat. I, I did go to a um, Cuban restaurant in Jacksonville once, and now that I have eaten Cuban food, I'm like, I don't know what they think they thought they were selling, um, <laughs> but it wasn't that. Um, so it's, it's just been great. Not, not only the food, but the fellowship has also been very sweet, um, not just with Zach and his wife, but also with the young adults. They're just great. Um, uh, gave me such a, a, a new hope uh, for the next generation of believers excited to see what God is doing. Um, all right, well, um, I, I have a goal every time I guest teach, and that is to teach shorter than uh, the pastor normally teaches, um, which I think um, has served me well. The congregations usually like me because they get out uh, sooner rather than later. So um, let's just uh, get straight into it. We'll pray, and uh, we'll jump into the Word of God together. Father, we thank you so much for this time that we're able to spend in your Word. We ask and pray, as always, that you would speak to us that it be you who illuminates the text to us, that if there's any area that, that we discussed this morning that you want to bring conviction, I pray that we would receive it, uh, that, that we wouldn't get defensive and want to fight back against your spirit, uh, but that we would humble ourselves and listen. If, if there's any area that you want to bring great encouragement to us, I, I pray that we wouldn't continue to um, self-inflict wounds in, in our psyche, but that we would receive your comfort. If any of us are lost, confused, I pray that you would bring guidance. If any of us are weak, I pray that you'd bring strength. We just pray, Lord, that, that you would receive all glory. Uh, we ask that you would be our teacher, uh, that you would uh, give me clarity of thought, strengthen my voice, and allow us to make it through this Bible study together. We love you, Jesus, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're in Jonah, and um, if you know the story, you know it's a whale of a tail. <laughs> uh, sorry. Um, there, there, there's a lot of good stuff in here. So let's just begin verse 1, Jonah chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Um, and we're going to see the duration of the book is how Jonah responds to when the word of the Lord came to him. Um, so just a passing comment. When the word of the Lord comes to you, how do you respond? I, again, do you, do, you, do you get defensive when, when Pastor Zach is up here and he's teaching you the word of God? Um, as you uh, are spending time daily with the Lord, as you read the words, you get defensive and upset as he begins to touch on different nerves? Or do you receive it? We see what Jonah did. <laughs> the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and cry out against it. Note, for their wickedness has come up before me. If you're living in sin um, and, and you think that you're hiding the wickedness, I want you to know you might be hiding it from others, you might be deceiving others, but you most certainly are not deceiving the Lord. The wickedness comes up to him. So God, rather than um, sending fire and brimstone down, he sent a prophet to those in Nineveh. He says, Jonah, I want it to be you. Verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee. God told him, go. Jonah said, no. 
But Jonah arose to flee to go to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We note that he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Just so you guys know, uh, geographically, <laughs> uh, Nineveh's that way. Tarshish is that way, okay? <laughs> he, he, he didn't kind of alter course. He went 180 degrees the opposite way. What's more is Tarshish was in their day the utter ends of the earth. He's like, I will go as extreme as I have to in my rebellion um, uh, to the Lord. Why? Because he hated those from Nineveh. Ninevites were not good people. They've been likened to um, uh, Hitler and his regime um, back in the uh, World War II. They were evil, wicked, deplorable people, again, like the Nazis. And so we go, well, it makes sense why Jonah would hate them, okay? That, that, that makes sense that Jonah would want to run away. Well, wait, pause. Does it make sense in your mind that God would call someone to them? We go, wow. I mean, let's, let's ask you. If God called you to go to those people you hate, perhaps if, if Miami's anything like Jacksonville politically, um, it's, it's, a, it's a hot topic. So let me ask, if God called you to those on the opposite side of the political aisle from you, would you go? And you go, well, no, those people can't be saved. <laughs> like, they're so lost. I mean, they're, they're long gone. Like, that is beyond saving, okay? <laughs> well, then you understand just a little bit of what Jonah felt. The, the Ninevites, uh, the, I mean, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, so really the Assyrians, they, they hated the Hebrews. They, they had brought great destruction to the Hebrews, and Jonah was more committed to his nationality he was more committed to his political group than he was to bringing the Lord honor and glory. And so he said, I'm going to run. I'm going to go the opposite way. So far does Jonah go that he even, if you read on the story later tonight, you'll see Jonah even embraces death over God's will. Like on the boat, they go, okay, so you're the guilty party. What do we got to do to stop the storm? Jonah's like, well, you got to pick me up and throw me overboard. And like we read that and we go, is there no other option? <laughs> like, Jonah, how about you just pray and say, I'm sorry? <laughs> like, you just repent. How about let's try that? He's like, no, I'm good. Throw me overboard. He, he was disappointed to see the fish, just so you know. He wanted to be embraced by the cold arms of death. Why? Because he wanted to run from the will of God. So we see that he paid for his fare. You always will pay as you run from the will of the Lord. Verse four, but the Lord sent out, some of your translations will say hurled, he threw a great wind on the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Sometimes the storms of life are storms of correction. Sometimes it's because we have sinned that the Lord hurls storms at us. And we read verse five, kind of to our amazement, this phrase, then the mariners were afraid. So due to their fear, what do they do? Every man, number one, cried out to his God. That proved helpless, pointless. So then they took matters into their own hands and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. That also didn't work. Bowing to their false gods didn't work. Trying to do things on their own didn't work. So 
Uh, they, they had to eventually turn to Jonah. But we find Jonah now. The mariners are up top. Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Just, just as an aside, notice verse 3. It says that Jonah, he went down to Joppa and he found a, tish, uh, sorry, he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare. No, and he went down into it. Verse 5, it says, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship. He had lain down. Later, he's thrown. He is swallowed and goes down into the belly of the fish. No doubt the fish then swam down into the sea. You just see it with the word. As we run from the word of God, we go down, 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 down. This is Jonah. But I want to draw your attention kind of to a unique spot here. Look at the first phrase in verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. The readers should read this and go, that's crazy. Why? Well, because the mariners are seafaring folk. They're not a baseball team in Seattle, okay? They're seafaring folk. These are the wizards of the waves, the titans of the tempestuous. These guys know what it's like to be on a storm um, in the middle of the sea. They, they know. They know what to do. And yet they themselves are afraid. Why? Because this is not a normal storm. Again, this is a storm of correction. This is a storm that comes directly from heaven. And so they're afraid. What do they do? Well, as we've already noted, every man cried out to his God. They did what humans do. When you're afraid, when, when you have anxiety, when you're worrying, we turn to our God. This is a great indicator in life. It's a good barometer to let us know where we're at. Who do you cry out to when you're afraid? Who do you turn to to bring you comfort, hope, joy, or resolution? Uh, listen, we'll talk very briefly about who the world turns to, and then the, for the duration of the study, we'll talk about who we as church people, Christians, who we turn to. First, who are the gods that the world cry out to? Number one, and we've already kind of noted it, themselves. Themselves. They look inward. They look deep down within themselves. And my question is, what do you expect to find? The deeper you go. Okay, I, I know the more I rely upon myself, the more trouble I find myself in. Which is why the Bible tells us so, so directly and lovingly, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. I know you know it, but it says this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Not some of your heart, but with all of your heart. And lean not upon your own understanding. If we lean on our own understanding, it's like leaning on a broken reed. It's not going to support you. It will not hold you up. At best, it's going to drive a giant splinter into your hand. So instead, what should we do? Verse 6, in all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. But then verse 7 is, is perfectly applicable. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. That's a problem. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Yet many continually, perhaps even delusionally, rely upon themselves. I mean, listen, they look in the mirror, and who do they see staring back at them? A wise sage. They see nothing but pure wisdom. Guys, this is not an individual problem, but rather a societal problem. In fact, having nothing to do with this study, I was just reading an article on Merriam-Webster's um, uh, website, and this is what it says. I was like, this is, I can't believe this is here. It's not even biblical or Christian, and it applies perfectly to this study. Listen, it says, we human beings certainly like to think we're wise, it's a fact reflected in the scientific name we've given to our species, 
Homo sapiens, which comes in part from the Latin word sapien, meaning wise or intelligent. So of all names to choose to give to ourselves, we picked the wise ones. That's it. That's who we are. Do you know why? Well, because honestly, ain't nobody as smart, intelligent, or wise as we are. I think Satan loves this strategy. Uh, I'll call it a fool's strategy to get a fool to think he's wise, to get the weak to think they're strong, to get the helpless to feel as if they need no help. The reality is we're all foolish. We're all weak and we're all helpless in need of the Lord. And Christians understand that when we rely upon the Lord, we experience his wisdom despite our foolishness. We experience his strength in the midst of our weakness, and we experience his help despite our helpless condition. We know not to turn to ourselves, I hope. Second, the world turns not just to themselves, but also to vices. Vices from porn, to alcohol, to toxic relationships, to narcotics, whatever. During the scariest times, people want to escape, so they turn to that which will bring them pleasure and allow them to temporarily forget. Now, serving these gods is very costly. Sure, the moment of pleasure and forgetfulness might be sweet, but it comes with a very high price tag. These addictions are like termites as they eat at the structure of one's life. And we see that when one is addicted, their home life suffers, their job performance suffers, their overall health suffers, as they either lose sleep or the stuff that they're putting into their bodies causes a devastating result on those bodies. It's a high price to pay, but many bow at the altar of a vice. You go, okay, well, that's what the world does. That's not what we as Christians should do. And maybe we even go, <laughs> foolish world. We would never be like that. Really? Do we not have um, idols that we bow to? Listen, guys, we are so foolish that we even have what I'll call church-approved idols. You can't bow down to those things, but hey, if you come over here, you can bow down to these things. In fact, we'll even say you're holy if you do. What are these, quote, church-approved idols? First is ministry. Ministry. Many have bowed to the idol of ministry, wanting it to give what only Jesus could give. I'll talk about it in two contexts. First, the church ministry. Uh, listen, we'll say this. Well, you can sacrifice everything, everything, as long as you're serving here at church. No, friend, listen, you need to be balanced in your life. Yes, you should sacrifice to the Lord. Yes, you should serve, but not to the detriment of families, not to the detriment of your own health. But people play this two ways. Either they serve too much, or they go, well, you know, I don't want to get burnt out, so I'm just not going to serve at all. <laughs> like, yeah, I guess you won't get burnt out that way. But we all ought to be serving, but we should do so in a balanced way. Not only church ministry, but how about just general ministry? Okay, we drop everything always for others, but we neglect time with the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry, I'm... I'm just so tired. I mean, I helped two different people move today. I mean, you blessed me with the pickup truck, right? Like, <laughs> this, is, this is what I'm supposed to do. Lord, sorry, I just don't have enough time for you. <gasps> I gotta hit the hay. Or our kids, right? They're like, daddy, daddy, daddy. Do you have time? Time for me? No, 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 Johnny. Or, what's your name again? 
Right, okay, I'm sorry. No, no, not, not right now, because Daddy's got to go help um, Sean, or is it John? Our neighbor, okay? I got to help our neighbor. So I'll, I'll find time for you later. We feel like it's okay because we, we disguise it as saying we're serving, we're doing ministry. Guys, if it's not ministry, how about careers? See, it's real easy to, to put a Christian spin on things. So it's easy for us to justify neglecting our walk with the Lord and even neglecting our family with a line like this. Well, God has called me to provide, right? He's called me to provide. So, so what I'm doing here is for my family. Okay, sure, maybe he's called you to provide, but has he called you to be gone 60 hours a week? Has he called you to chase success? I mean, it sounds great, right? It sounds sacrificial, but the reality is that you're working for you. You're working for your status. Your family might be provided for, but listen, they're the ones who are paying the price. But it sounds good. It sounds Christian. All right, let, let, let's get real. <laughs> let me, since I'm a guest here, I figure I'll just come and offend all of you. Um, <laughs> the number one church-approved idol that I've seen in 18 years of ministry, family. Family. I mean, hey, focus on the family, right? Like, this is what we're supposed to do in church. Listen, family is a good thing, but when we take a good thing and we make it a God thing, it becomes an idol. Okay, it's good. Family is good. It's a blessing, but your family is not God, and we cannot bow to the altar of family. Let me give you just three different examples of how we do this. Number one is with parents. I can't believe I have to talk this way now, but I'm seeing in a younger generation an over-dependence on parents as adults, okay? So this is what I see. I see Genesis chapter 3 telling us that we're to do two things, leave and cleave. Now, to not leave one's parents means that you live in a perpetual state of dependence upon them while an adult. To not leave one's parents will greatly hinder your cleaving to your spouse and the two of you will not be able to grow together because your growth will be paralyzed because any difficulty that you face, you'll just call mom and dad. You together will not hit your knees and seek the Lord. You'll just call mom and dad. They'll take care of it. My parents raised me in a way that when, when I left, I left. <laughs> they made sure of it. Um, I'm like, but I'm only 12. Like, get out. Um, so, so when my wife and I got married, I remember, like, I was, I was dead set, man. Like, I am not going to rely on my parents. Now, we got married when we had just turned 20. We have the same birthday, same year. It's crazy. It's a fun story. I'll tell you another time, <clears throat> if Zach ever has me back. Um, okay. But we, we got married. We had no money. I was working four part-time jobs and going to school. She was uh, playing soccer so, uh, for, for a college, so she had to be focused on school. She couldn't get a job, so I had the four part-time jobs. Later, we, we got, like, the, the tax information, and, and we had made $17,000 total. That was not a lot of money then or now, okay? Uh, it was, it, not much. Um, and I remember one day, we're super hungry, because we have no food. We had no money in, in the bank account. Um, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, there's nothing. We had nothing. We didn't have ramen. I had zero dollars. I'm like, we can't do it. And we didn't, we were told not to have credit cards, so I didn't have any credit cards. So I'm like, I don't, I don't know how we eat now. Like, I'm, I'm like, I could call my parents, but I can't depend on my parents. Like, I have to figure this out. Like, I'm supposed to be the man. I was like, I'm the man. <clears throat> I'm the man, right? Like, <laughs> I got to provide for my wife. Guys, I, I'm not kidding. I remember I opened the freezer and I was like, oh my gosh. And I closed it and I was like, 
still nothing in there. Like, I don't know what to do. So I prayed silently. I didn't, I didn't give my, I just prayed. I was like, Lord, I can't do this. I can't provide for it. And no joke, my, my, my wife's sister, she was dating um, the guy that she's married to now. His, his, uh, he's 100% Mexican. And Mexicans, like Cubans and Puerto Ricans, know how to do good food. Thank you, Lord. Um, and so she, she's like, hey, um, uh, my soon-to-be mother-in-law, uh, she, she made an extra like, tray of green chili chicken enchilada casserole. I'm like, all of that is my favorite thing. <laughs> like, so do you guys want it? Yes. We want that so bad. If I had a million dollars in my bank account, I would still want that, right? The Lord provided. He taught me a very valuable lesson. The Lord provided. The Lord will provide. Okay? Leave and cleave. But it's not just parents that, that we rely on. How about this? Spouses. Spouses, let me give you some signs that you idolize your spouse. Like, I don't have a problem with idolizing my spouse. I mean, well, some people might. So let me just talk to them real quick. Like, okay. <laughs> Number one, you know you're idolizing your spouse if you rely on them instead of the Lord. You rely on them. You say things like this, I couldn't live if they passed away. Now listen, I'm not saying it wouldn't be horribly difficult, but you would find new strength in the Lord if you rely upon the Lord. You'll say things like, I'm, I'm secure because my spouse takes care of me. And no, 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 that's not how we should say it. We should say, I'm thankful to the Lord that he's provided a spouse who wants to take care of me emotionally or financially. Thank you, Jesus, for such a good spouse. You see the difference? One is saying, you're my savior. The other is saying, thank you to your savior for this instrument in your life. We'll even say this, I'm confident because my spouse believes in me. No, again, we should say, praise God, I have a loving and supportive spouse. This is crucial because what if your spouse doesn't take care of you or stops taking care of you financially or emotionally? What if your spouse doesn't believe in you? You see, we need to rely on the Lord above our spouse and be thankful to God if we have a spouse who treats us biblically. Number two sign that you are idolizing your spouse is your value comes from them and not from the Lord. Whether it be that you are so proud of their success that you find self-worth because they are so successful or far more common and far worse, it's the opposite. You feel worthless because you view them as a failure. Lazy bum, my mom was right about you, right? And then you feel like a failure or the worst of all, you view yourself as worthless because that's what they tell you you are. Maybe you're in an abusive relationship. You're not worthless. Doesn't matter what they say. Your value must come from the Lord. Lastly, you know you're idolizing your spouse because you ignore all warning signs. Since you derive your satisfaction, your worth, and your happiness solely from your spouse, you accept whatever amount your idol is willing to dish out. This means that if your spouse is not trustworthy, you just simply look the other way. Because you can't handle the reality that they might not be faithful to you. So one chooses to live in that river in Egypt, denial, right? Some of you will be driving home. Oh, <laughs> the Nile, but he said it, denial. Yes, that's true. In a book I highly recommend called The Myth of, Greener, of the Greener Grass, J. Allen Peterson in his section talking about infidelity says this, 
Denial is an escape mechanism based on fear, false hope, listen, and lack of trust in God. This means if your spouse is verbally or emotionally abusive, you sit there and take it because you're living on the meager rations of encouragement that they're willing to give you. Guys, more than that, you'll even give them excuses when they're overly domineering and controlling. Why? Because we always give our idols excuses for their abuse of us. No matter what the idol is, we give it excuses. Well, it's okay because, it's okay because, it's not okay. If your marriage is hurting, first of all, pray and ask the Lord for help and guidance. Two, be honest with yourself about your problems. Stop burying them. Three, lovingly, if possible, communicate them with your spouse. And four, and maybe the second most important, seek outside help. There's a great uh, marriage ministry here at the church. Seek the church for guidance. They'll tell you what the Bible says. There's no better place to go for marriage counsel than the word of God. Okay, lastly, if you're not offended yet, you will be. Um, because the last section, the last section of, of church-approved idols within the family, children. Children. Guys, I know they're cute. I have three of them. They're adorable. They're wonderful. But that cute little baby is a filthy, rotten, dirty little sinner. I want you to know that, okay? <laughs> From day one, they think solely about themselves. Just want you guys to all know before we get into it, okay? So I'm going to give you, and I know the number I'm about to say, I'm going to give you 10 signs that you are idolizing your kids. And if, if any of these are true, I encourage you to repent. Number one, you ignore their sin nature, and you do what you do with idols. You give excuse for their sin rather than discipline them. Well, little Susie, little Johnny, they've always done that. It's no big deal. Or he's not throwing a hissy fit. He sprained his ankle. That's what it is. <laughs> he sprained his ankle. Everyone else sees, just so you know. Everyone else sees, okay? And, and most people are judging you and the kid now, just, just so you know. <laughs> or my personal favorite, when a kid gets in trouble from a teacher or, or an authority figure in their life, the parent swoops in. They do it quickly because they're already there. They're helicoptering over them, like, right? They swoop in and they give them an excuse. They'll, they'll do something like this. Did you hit them because they hit you first? Is that why you did it? Is that, is that it? Okay. Or you're at someone's house. Did you steal that toy because that looks just like our toy at home and you thought that it was your toy and so you weren't actually stealing? You're just taking what you thought was yours? Is that what that's all, that's all that it is? That's it. <laughs> Give me a break. Do you, do you know why they hit that kid? Because they're a dirty, rotten, filthy little sinner. Do you know why they stole a toy? Because they're a dirty, rotten, filthy little sinner. That's why. Discipline the kid rather than giving excuses. Well, the pendulum swings all the other way. So the second sign you know you're, you're idolizing your kids is you overly discipline them because you're embarrassed. I, I'm guilty of this one, right? Like, like my son did something, I don't even know, can't even example, he does something kind of cross. I'm like, what did you do that for? He doesn't always do that. He's not like that normal. Like, right? Like, you're so embarrassed. Why? Because if your kid is your God, God is supposed to be perfect. 
supposed to be perfect. So you have to expect perfection from your kids. I promise you it will drive them away. It'll drive them away from you. It'll drive them away from your family. And it'll drive them away from the Lord. Number three, you sacrifice to them more than to God. I see this in two ways. One, I see this, you sacrifice your schedule for what's best for them, what you deem is best for them, rather than for the Lord. People have kids, you don't see them for a year, year and a half at church. Why? Well, because of sleep schedule. There's two services. We have a midweek too. I know, but he sleeps during all of that. <laughs> well, then I'm a guest, so I'm just going to say it. Change his sleep schedule, Right? My kids have made it to church this whole time. Like, even when they were babies. They, like, it's possible. I promise you. If it's not scheduled, then it's your standard. You, your standard is what's best for them, as you think, rather than what's best from the Lord. The Word says not to be lazy, but my baby needs some rest. He's been working so hard. The Word says not to lie, but, but my baby needed an excuse, and he didn't have a real one. So a little white lie never hurt anyone except everyone, always. The word says to consider others better than yourself, but my baby needs to focus on him right now. He really does. He needs to turn inward. <laughs> There's a biblical standard, but your child can live substandard to that because they're your God. Number four, you overly protect. You know that going through tough things in life is good up here, but not for your baby. For everybody else, it's good. But you can't handle that a teacher seems not to like them, so what do you do? You berate the teacher to them. That's the worst teacher in the school anyways. You can't handle that the band director didn't give your, your kid first chair. Instead, he gave him second fiddle. First service liked it more than you, Okay. So you tell your kid that your band teacher's deaf. He's an idiot, right? He can't spot talent if it was right in front of his face. The referee calls a foul on your son, so you tell your son later the referee blew the game. Had nothing to do with the 18 turnovers that he had. No, it was besides the point. It was the ref's fault. I'm so blessed to say that I didn't live in a house like this. When I was in eighth grade, basketball was my life. And in eighth grade, I made the A-team. Go me. You're supposed to make the A-team in eighth grade, if you didn't know that, okay? Um, make the A-team. The coach calls me into his office. I'm like, all right, this is when he makes me the captain of the team. Um, and he calls me into the office, and he's like, hey, uh, I'm going to let you pick. Do you want to play on the A-team or the B-team? I was like, this is not what I thought this meeting was about. Um, he's like, you're not good enough to play much on the A-team? I'm like, yeah, this is definitely not what I thought this meeting was about. He's like, but you'll play a lot on the B team. I'm like, I want to be on the A team, baby. Like, I'm going to prove to you that you're wrong. Well, I never proved it to him. Um, <laughs> I was on the A team, but I, I barely played. You want to know what? My dad never said to me, that coach is so dumb. I can't believe that one kid plays more than you. You're the best shooter on the team. Do you know why? Because I wasn't the best shooter on the team. Right? He, he didn't do that. He didn't berate my coach to me. But when I complained to my dad about the coach, he would go, no, no, no. All you can do is work hard and have a good attitude. That's your focus. You submit to your coach. I've talked to my dad about it. He's like, yeah, I thought your coach was crazy. 
Like, since then, like, as an adult, I've talked to him, like, did you think my coach was crazy? He's like, yeah, I did. I'm like, but you didn't tell me that. <laughs> when I, when I uh, got into ministry, um, I, I was hired as an intern at, at Calvary Chapel, Tucson, Tucson, Arizona. And uh, one of the first rotations I had was with Pastor Allen. Pastor Allen was fresh off the mission field from Mexico. So he was rough. Um, and and he, he was not Americanized yet, right? Like now we're supposed to be all soft and kind to, like, to anyone who's just getting into ministry. We're supposed, oh, 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 let me coddle. Let me help, right? Like that's what we're supposed to do. Like don't worry about sacrificing. I'll sacrifice for you. That's now the ministry mindset. Back in the day, that wasn't the ministry mindset, okay? It was throw you to the wolves and see if you survive. If you do, maybe you should consider ministry, Okay. So here I am working with Alan, and one day I show up. I had eight-hour days, two days a week, and I show up, and uh, he hands me a shovel. I'm like, what is this, right? He's like, it's a shovel. I'm like, yes, I see that. Why do I have it? And he's like, because I want you to go dig a hole. I was like, okay. Uh, Just so you guys know, in Florida, when you stick a shovel into the ground, it goes in. It's really cool. In Arizona, that don't happen. It would be like if I said dig a hole right there. Right through the concrete. Like, you just have to sit there and spray it with water. We're like, what are you doing? I'm eventually going to dig a hole here. (laughs) And then after spraying it with water, you dink, and get maybe an inch, half inch. You just got to do that all day long. No joke, I broke the shovel. The the shovel had broke off, and I walked into Alan's office. I was like, the shovel broke. He's like, okay, you know where the store is, though, right? I'm like, I hate my life. (laughs) Go to the store, buy a new shovel. I dig for eight hours. Blisters all over my hands, so frustrated. But I told myself, it's for a basketball hoop. That's why I'm digging this. He never told me it was for him. Like, it's for a basketball hoop. We're going to put concrete in there. We're going to put a, a basketball hoop up, and everyone's going to love me. So next day, I, I get to work. I see there was no concrete in the hole that I had dug a couple days before. And so Alan's like, all right, here's a shovel. And I'm like, I already dug the hole. He's like, no, I know. I want you to fill it in today. Like, With concrete? He's like, no, with the soil you dug. I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Why? And he's like, because you need to learn to listen. You need to learn to listen to authority and not question. I was like, oh, I'm gonna question you real hard right now. <laughs> I go home and I complain to my dad. This is the worst job. I hate working for Pastor Allen. I can't stand it. He made me dig a hole and then fill it in. And my dad, very stoic, just listens. And then when I finish, he's like, all right, the way I see it, you have two options. Number one, you quit. Number two, you quit your complaining. Those are your two options. And I quit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I quit my complaining. And I'm so thankful to have a dad like that. Who, who, who didn't try to come in and overly protect me. He didn't say, I'm, I'm going to go meet with Pastor Allen and, and give him a piece of my mind. Can't believe you would do that to my son. Nope. Those are your options, son. Number five way you know that you are idolizing your kid, you side with your kid over everyone else, including your spouse. I can't think of many more damaging things to do in a home than to always take your kid's side, especially in front of your spouse. Now, let's be real. Sometimes little Johnny makes some sense. <laughs> right? Like, you're like, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> what do you do in that moment? 
you pull your spouse aside in a separate room where the kids can't hear, and you go, hey, actually, that kind of made sense. Like, how do you want to deal with this? You see? And then you come back a united front. Number six way you know you're idolizing your kid is you do literally, I put this all in caps, everything for them. Everything. You pick up after them because you don't want them to be stressed. Their homework seems a little bit difficult, so you do it. I know there's people guilty of that. I've gone to my kid's school during the science fair. I'm like, there ain't no way. There ain't no way that kid did that. Dad's like backing in a truck. I'm like, nope. My kid's like, I got this. I'm like, that's because she did it, right? They're having conflict with the friend. So what do you do? You call their parent. You're going to figure this whole thing out. They're, they're your idols, so they have to be happy. Number seven, not only do you do everything for them, but you get everything for them. You constantly spend more than you have to on them. Not just on necessities, not on fun things that you bless them with here and there, but you always and only get them the best. I mean, you don't want them to be embarrassed wearing off-brand stuff, right? Give me a break. <laughs> my parents gave me off-brand stuff my whole life, and I didn't know. You know, like the Michael Jordan brand? There used to be a brand from Walmart called Jumpman. That's what I wore. <laughs> Jordan's like this, you know, and then like Jumpman's like, like that. <laughs> I didn't know. The sole broke off. I'm like, man, these Jordans are cheap. They're like, yeah, those Jordans are cheap. <laughs> but she needs a $500 baseball bat or softball bat. It gives her the best chance of success. I want my kid in a safe vehicle, so I had to get him to 2023 Ford Bronco. It's safe. It's safe. They need the iPhone 14 because all their friends have the iPhone 14. I don't want to be the uncool parent. Be the uncool parent. Give me a break. Who cares if they're embarrassed? And if they're not 16, don't even give them a phone. Side point. That was supposed to be funny and no one laughed. They're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> we, uh, this, this is free. This wasn't in the first. Um, we... Uh, <laughs> We don't give our daughter, she's 13, and we don't give her a phone yet. Um, and she said to my wife, my wife's the best. And she says to my wife, every kid in my class has a phone. I'm the last kid that doesn't have a phone. And my, my wife says, sweetie, all I hear you saying is how good of a mom I am. Like, I'm sorry. I... <laughs> number eight, number eight, you live vicariously through them. I had a bunch of stuff written down, but I found this quote from Scott Foreman, who's a senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in New Jersey. He says this, it's one thing to cheer for your kids during sporting events. It's another thing to attempt to relive your past through your kids. I coached my kids in, in sports. Right now, I've been coaching baseball uh, for my son's team, and I coach with a guy who does this. I see it all the time. Like, he'll sit the kids down. He's like, do you want to know why I was so good when I was younger? I'm like, time out. First of all, no, they don't care, right? They couldn't care less. Second of all, I now think you weren't very good because you always have to talk about it. Just so you know. He goes on to say in this quote, that inevitably puts them into unhealthy scenarios that will be impossible to live up to. It's not just sports. It's anything really where you need them to be successful in X area of life because it makes you feel successful. Their success becomes a big pat on your back. 
their victories, I want you to hear this, in a weird and twisted way become yours because you're living through them. They've got to be the best singer in the school because, well, you were the best singer. Got to be the best athlete because you were the best athlete. It's sad. Number nine, almost done. You are more concerned with their happiness than their holiness. More concerned with their happiness than their holiness. Playing video games six hours a day is what makes them happy, so it's okay if they shirk from their responsibilities. That's fine. It's okay if they don't really ever spend time in the Word because they get tired, and it's just not easy at that age. Number 10, and lastly on purpose, you constantly worry about them. Even when they're not sick, even when they're succeeding, you worry and worry and worry. They might even just say something in passing like, my stomach doesn't feel great. And so what do you do? Eight-year-old with stomach problems, search. Cancer, oh baby, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. You've concluded that they need you by their side constantly because you are overly concerned of how they'll respond to certain situations. Rather than learning from difficulties in life, you block all difficulties. You won't let their coach say anything to them because, I've heard this, his tone might damage their psyche and alter their life's trajectory. I heard it. Parents say it. I'm like, what? Oh, man, they're serious. You won't let a teacher discipline them because you worry that their self-confidence will be devastated. So you trust the kid more than the adult. Guys, observation, too much worry is based on two problems. The young adults can tell you a little bit about this because it's what we talked about at, at the conference. But number one is control. Control. You worry that someone will say or do something that will shatter what you've created in your kid. So you have them in this perfect little bubble and no one else can get close because their, their life is going to be devastated. Can I just tell you a quick story? Again, not in the first service. I went to, to college. Um, I went to the University of Arizona and there I had several classes with a guy named Eric. My name's Eric. He was funny. <laughs> I'm, I'm funny looking. Um, and so... We just got along smashingly. Um, anyways, um, he knew I was a Christian. He knew I was actually a pastor at the time. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, I used to be a Christian. He's like, I, I did the whole thing, man, the whole thing. He's like, I'm not a Christian anymore. As soon as I hit college, I ran the other way. And, and I'm, I'm still friends with him on Facebook today, and he still is not a believer. And I said, well, what happened? He's like, my parents, man, they just wanted to hold me in this little bubble my whole life. I never had any freedom. I was never allowed to do anything. And as soon as college hit, I said, I'm done with religion. They forced everything, everything down my neck. I don't know if you need to hear that or not. Number two reason why you worry, it's not just control, but it's a low view of your child's resolve. Low view of your child's resolve. You don't think that they can handle anything in life, so you do anything you can to prevent life from happening to them. They can't handle it. They're too weak. When we make our kids our gods, we create in them a me-centered life. Everything revolves around them. They can't fail because you have an excuse anytime they have failed. They don't have to think of others because you've allowed them to always do what they want and get what they want. They don't need God because he's never been prioritized because they've been the priority. We don't have to go to church. All-star baseball, man. 
It's on Sundays. We don't have to go to church because I need a rest because, because you know, it's, it's more healthy for my singing voice. These are things I've heard. These are real things I've heard. All right, guys, in conclusion, what do you do when life's storms hit you? Who do you turn to? Will you be like the mariners in Jonah's boat and cry out to your little gods? Perhaps wanting to be more Christian, will you turn to your church-approved idols? Or will you trust in the living God who alone is able, who alone is able to be your strong tower in place of refuge? I think it's a bit ironic, but later in the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the fish, you'll note he prays, it says, after three days. That's how stubborn he was. He's like, I ain't doing it. I'm just going to rot and die in here. God's like, you ain't going to die. Like, I'll, I'll give you supernatural life. You can be in here for four years if you want, right? <laughs> After three days, he finally prays, and listen to what he says in verse 8 of Jonah chapter 2. Those who cling to worthless idols, those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. If you want to turn away from God's love, then, then cling to these worthless idols these church-approved idols. But if not, I urge you, I urge you to turn to the Lord and to cling to him. All right, that being said, let's stand, let's pray, and we'll sing before we go. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do for us. We thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. We thank you, Lord, that, that you show us the weakness and frailty of idols. And I pray, God, that we would always listen to you that we would heed the wisdom in your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us enough to come alongside of us, to help us learn from our failures and our weaknesses. And I pray that none of us would be so foolish as to turn to anything else above you. We thank you for the blessings in life. Lord, we, we, we thank you for ministry. We thank you for a career. We thank you for family. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to never put any of those things in your throne over our life. We never want you to be relegated. We always want you to stay in a place of full and total authority over us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that we will answer your call when you call. (laughs) It's in your name that we pray, amen.